Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and occasional doer of musical things. <laughs> I've changed it. Yeah, you have, huh? And uh, I'm Andy Stewart, I'm a filmmaker and I write as well. <laughs> and uh, we have got an in-studio guest for the first time in almost a month. Yeah, 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 it's been a while since we've had somebody here and somebody so beautiful. Uh, Just look at his face. Yeah. Uh, he is a director and producer with Hex Studios, Scotland's only dedicated horror and fantasy studio. You may know him from directing the likes of The Black Gloves and The Unkindness of Ravens. We're joined today by Mr. Laurie Brewster. Laurie, hello. Uh, hello, hello. Hello there, <laughs> Andy, Mitch. Yes. Are you uh, going to keep up this, this voice throughout, Laurie? Or is this going to be dropped at some point? I find that unsettling. Yeah, I, 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 that caught me off guard <laughs> in a big way. <laughs> now, I can only maintain that affectation for the introduction. This right. is my normal voice. Yes, okay. yes, and a fine voice it is too. And thank you for uh, making the, the journey down from the, the, the icing off. An absolute pleasure. And it's a great opportunity to talk about one of my favourite films. Aye, and let's just jump straight to that. You've gone for uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, I, I thought it was actually Emmanuel in Africa. But okay, yes, we can do it in yeah, the can, madness. That's can, can, can you improvise? Is that okay? <laughs> I have not prepared for Emmanuel in Africa. I haven't, se- I, I, I haven't seen that in like a week and a half. <laughs> now, I've got to ask you, Laurie. We did have someone suggest in a previous uh, online comment that we do In the Mouth of Madness. Was this just something you went, oh, fuck it, I'll do that? No. (laughs) I'll have you know I've listened to no episodes of this show. uh, (laughs) Exactly, I have a standard to maintain. I don't have time for listening to this garbage. (laughs) You know, uh, in the the Mouth of Madness, it's, it's an interesting film and it's an interesting period where horror films were transitioning towards the mediocrity of the early 2000s. So, uh, I don't know about that. We just uh, did an episode in Blair Witch 2. (laughs) Alright? Wash your mouth out with fucking soap, young man. (laughs) Yeah, if it wasn't for Blair Witch 2, you wouldn't have DVDs you could use as beer mats for whilst watching in the mouth of madness. So, that's a a contribution to cinema that's important in its own right as well. But yeah, so um, uh, what what is your relationship with this film? Why did you choose it today? Well, I'm a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, which I expect many of your listeners will be as well. Lovecraftian tradition in cinema is one that hasn't fully reached its potential, I don't think. It's quite hard to find one that feels like it's in the spirit of the short stories. Often they'll parody Lovecraft, or not in a mean-spirited way, but it's, it's, it's weird to find something that feels authentic. And although not perfect, I think In the Mouth of Madness is the closest to something that feels like it's in that that spirit. And its unique quality, I think, lets it stand, in some ways, the test of time, especially among Carpenter's later work. So did you see this when it came out? Oh, well, no, I didn't see it in the cinema as... That was 1993, so I would only have been uh, 12 from it. (laughs) Despite my appearance, uh, this... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this film would have been before my time. I like to think you've just always looked like this, this buff. Of course, I just returned from the Boer War and 
I was remarkably busy cleaning muskets, you know. So I didn't quite have time. All right, all right, okay. So when did you catch up with this one then? Man, in the mouth of madness. Well, like, again, yourselves and most of the listeners, when I was growing up, you wanted to create your favourite VHS rental store in your living room, you know, mm-hmm. just collecting horror films. And John Carpenter was, you know, is you know one of the great horror directors. And when I was into horror films, everything he made was something I wanted on my bookshelf. And then The Myth of Madness was one of the later ones. I'd watched Vampires before that, and I was kind of like, okay, it's, it's okay, but it's not. <laughs> but then this one just you know, totally blew me away. And, of course, it's got everyone I love. It's got Sam Neill, who I love, David Warner, who I adore, and the cameo from Charlton Heston was incredible <laughs> as well. Julia Carmen, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great cast. And a really kind of weirdly unsettling film. So, no, it, it, it blew me away. So I watched it on VHS, thanks to HMV, when it still existed. And uh, that, that was it. I must have been about 15. Okay, so what we normally do at this point, before we jump in <coughs> right into the meat of the story, is... Uh, Andy, you've got 30 seconds on the clock? I do, yeah. Captain of preparation, as always. 30-second synopsis for the benefit of anyone who is crazy enough to listen without having seen the film. You ready? By the way, just to let you know, Laurie, in the past, these haven't gone well. All right, so yeah, Duncan McLeish holds the record. I think he yeah. finished with like ten seconds to spare. Yeah, and his was concise it. and nailed it. Everyone else has had a lot of trouble. Are you ready? Right, three, two, one, go. In the Mouth of Madness is a film that explores the journey of an insurance investigator who must unearth a conspiracy that sees the disappearance of a horror writer known as Sutter Kane, a man that is suspected to be the cause of a phenomenon that is bringing about the downfall of humanity perhaps due to it, the release of ancient spirits known as the Old Ones from their dimension into our own. So, in a race against time, Sam Neill's character has to try and find this author and unravel the mystery, perhaps to save mankind itself. Unfortunately, Laurie. Well, was that the end? Was that you done? Oh, well, that was... Right actually, the oh, I don't know. That's going to have to go for a <laughs> adjudication. I uh, but that's, that, was, that was pretty convincing. I'm impressed. Yeah, that's and, uh, yeah. It, did feel like you were reading that, but I can attest he, the man has no pad. Yeah, I would have swore blind you were reading that off yeah. a card, but no. Yeah, the man has no cards, nothing at all. No. So no. yeah, we, we were mocking him, calling him un- underprepared, but... Yeah, no, hey, yeah. can't argue with that. Right, so let's jump straight into this thing. So, uh, op- Amazing opening theme. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had this down as being the, clo- the closest you can get to Enter Sandman without being done for quality, uh, <laughs> for a copyright infringement. <laughs> and you can't go that close to Enter Sandman without the risk of Metallica getting involved. That is very true, uh, they are a litigious bunch. Yeah, they are indeed. What I did like, when it, the opening credits are rolling over the, the printing presses and stuff, it does come up, um, music by John Carpenter and Jim Lang. Jim Lang is the name of the guy that edits my films. Uh, it's so actually, that was um, quite nice. It's, it's actually <laughs> KD Lang that was the... Company musician. <laughs> right, oh, sorry, did I have misread that? Yeah. <laughs> Constant craving. Constant craving. <laughs> During her metal phase, which was brief um, but surprising. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that all three of us got that reference. It's nice. <laughs> but we do join uh, the film on the printing of In the Mouth of Madness, correct? Uh, certainly in the pr- on the printing of Ah Sutter Kane book. I think it, I think it I is think on the it is. Madness. Or yeah. is it uh, at Hobbs? Uh, the oh, Hobbs End. At Hobbs End mm-hmm. or whatever it is. There we go. Um, great theme tune. One of my favourite John Carpenter theme tunes. Yeah, and, and just for the, I mean, the listeners might not all have heard it. It goes like this. So as, as you say, Andy, uh, a powerful theme, quite go uh, like that. It's one for memorable uh, <laughs> contribution a, to music. It's probably in best cinema, if someone, and, uh, 
It's probably best you, you look up the tune for yourself <laughs> rather than rely on that. I uh, I listened to it several times today and uh, I, I don't recall it sounding like that. It's a, it's, a handy, it's a handy substitute for when we don't have the rights for stuff, though. You're <laughs> <laughs> just going to get Laurie to do it every time. Um, so, uh, as is like almost inevitable with the films that we do in the show, we start... In a mental hospital. And I think this is, I think we're uh, maybe five or six out of eight now that have got a mental hospital featuring quite heavily in them. Yeah, absolutely. I would say it's, it's something It's something around there. And it's at this point that we meet, probably at the most haggard he is in the entire film, potentially, uh, Sam Neill's character, John J. Trent. John Trent, yeah. Uh, he's been escorted by Dr. Saperstein, played by John Glover, uh, who was Daniel Clamp in Gremlins 2. And here, he again is at his big tooth best doing that ver- that thing where it kind of feels like I've been around insane people so long I'm also insane he's mm. got that kind of wide-eyed kind of giggling like you know in Batman like in Batman the guys that become the villains they're always that kind of unhinged person in their normal life he has Aye. that kind of thing going on now when he uh, yeah and he's uh, he's depositing John J. Trent into uh, his cell where he will remain for the majority of the film. Yeah, and when he gets when he gets thrown in there, um, I you know when he kind of grabs the bars and he screams, "I'm not insane!" Mm-hmm. I always think that that's the least convincing thing, and that's as I'm just like, "Yeah, that sounds like something an insane person would say." He's acting quite. <laughs> in, he's true, acting yeah. quite insane. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like pretty unhinged. He looks insane. He's filthy. He is screaming incoherently. He's doing everything in his power to convince them that he is insane. I mean, it's great that that footage of Sam Neill in his trailer could be used in the film because that saves a lot of the production budget. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, I'm already saying at this point that we know that we are like we've got a. Uh, it's like an unspecified apocalyptic event of some kind. There is something brewing. Yeah. That's all we know. Well, we don't actually know that until David Warner turns up. Uh-huh, okay. At this point, he's just a madman getting locked away um, for undisclosed reasons. And then there's a, a, I don't know if it's a torture thing to play um, We've Only Just Begun by the Carpenters. This really a nice, made me laugh. Yeah, there's yeah, a nice yeah. little dig, dig at the Carpenters in there, <laughs> uh, which, which I loved. Cracked me up. But yeah, a nice measured performance by Sam Neill in the early running. I One of the bigger laughs I got at the start is when, after he shouts, I'm not insane, and there's just kind of this ra- like rabble. And just somewhere in there from another cell, you just hear a distant voice going, Me neither! <laughs> God, we really do talk about mental hospitals a lot, don't we? Yeah. Um, enter Dr. Wren. David Glover. Don- David Glo- I was going to say Donald Glover. <laughs> Quite a different guy. Enter Childish yeah. Gambino. <laughs> that would have been amazing, though. <laughs> enter Danny Glover, either. Yeah, that would be Danny a Glover, different yeah. experience altogether. I love both of their work. Yeah. <laughs> David Warner. Not Glover at all. David Warner of The Omen fame enters. Uh, and it was a simple joy to be derived from hearing David Warner use the words swollen testicles, uh, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think, a pure joy. Yeah, David Warner, I think, lends the film, and any film he's in, a kind of majestic quality. Yeah, just, a gravitas. I, I, exactly. And I think it's his presence and the way that his performance exudes a sense of this disturbed, disconcerted quality that's mm-hmm. affecting the world, that brings in the first strangeness of the atmosphere the film has where it manages to really evoke a sense that the world is in peril from unknown forces yeah. you know he, he manages to ex- kind of exude that kind of unsettled emotional state that its subtlety works really well with Sam Neill's more extreme performance to kind of give that give his overreaction a credibility that makes you think shit what is going on with the world it's worth mentioning at this point that Sam Neill is covered in crayon crosses 
Like his whole body, so is. his whole body is covered in crayon crosses. His whole cell is covered in black crosses that he's drawn with crayon. That was his one request: was one single black crayon. We're told. Admittedly, so, it was rather irresponsible of the nurse to give him a crayon that in that instance. A, yeah. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Better a crayon than feces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so like the two, the two main recurring themes of this podcast are mental hospitals and incompetent staff at mental hospitals. As but a, as in the a, wrong hands, a weapon. An additional point of trivia, uh, David Warner was originally going to be the voice of the Owlman in our film uh, Lord of Tears as oh. well. Oh. Um, so it's at this point that we're getting... So uh, Trent starts to recount the story of how he's ended up where he is yeah and yes, yes, again yes. And, and so it, it, when we move into flashback which is the majority of how the film spent time narratively um so he's an insurance investigator and at the beginning we see him rumbling a very good one to be, yeah mm-hmm. so we've been told yeah <laughs> although to be fair the very very first thing we do uh see him doing is rumbling a very incompetent insurance roster yeah yeah Dispensing some very valuable advice about uh, essentially keeping your wife out of your out of any schemes that you've got because she'll fuck you over. Yeah, so it's good that the film cares to give that advice to the audience. Uh, yeah. PSA. It, it also kind of gives it like um, almost like a film noir quality as well. Like he yeah. almost seems a bit like a private detective rather than an insurance investigator. The way he's playing it, you know, the long drags of the cigarette and the. All this kind of stuff. He's always that one move away from being like, quiet, you crazy broad. <laughs> yeah, and he yeah. never asks permission to light a cigarette anywhere. Like, and he's, con- he's constantly been told to put his cigarette out. Like, and he just keeps lighting them up. He's like, fuck <laughs> it, I'll do what I like. I'm the top of my game. I'm sound uh, fucking Neil. <laughs> and then uh, it cuts to them. Uh, he's in a restaurant uh, or a cafe. What yes. do you call it? A cantina? I think it's kind of a cantina. <laughs> I don't, I don't uh, know if I, I certainly wouldn't call it a cantina. <laughs> like, but the... Uh, <laughs> And, it's not uh, like the Star Wars cantina. That's the important thing. And that's this is the moment we get our first real, real moment of weirdness when um, an axe wielding madman uh, crashes through the, the the restaurant window and uh, asks, "Do you read Sutter Kane?" He, he has a special voice, though. It has a kind of three D quality to it. It goes like, "Do you read Sutter Kane?" That was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well done. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's the, the kind of start of what is going on here. Something this is uh, um, bizarre. See when you when you see him coming up in the background with the axe and he pans mm-hmm. in the window. I really wish that they had done that in one take rather than cutting down inside the glass before he smashed it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it would yeah. have been that would have been even better. Yeah, I just I, that's I, I never noticed stuff like that, but that was just one. That, um, but I think it's really it's really well done. You see him coming from quite a quite a ways away. Oh yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, and uh, Trent gets hired by Arcane Books uh, or Arcane Publishing. Uh, to investigate the disappearance of Sutter Kane. He's this kind of elusive Stephen King-type author. Um, there's a few nice jabs to Steve, uh, Stephen King in there. Playful jabs. Like, yeah, that's, and John Carpenter are quite friendly, I think. That crops up a couple of times, doesn't it? Like, yeah. When he's in the office in, uh, what do you call her, Styles that we meet later on, she's like, forget Stephen King. This guy's sold 80 million books or whatever. So yeah, he gets jabbed a couple of times. And that's at this point as well, we're intri- introduced to Charlton Heston. Uh, yeah, Mr. Harglow, I want to say. Yeah, Jackson Harglow. Jackson Harglow, thank you. Thank you. It's man. a remarkable cameo to, to think. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. To get Charlton Heston in on what would have still been then a lower budget horror film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's quite remarkable. I yeah, think they probably, I, I think they had him for a day at best. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just like in this one office, just get him, shoot him out. But yeah, a, a fine performance from Charlton Heston, I guess you wouldn't really. Yeah, no, it's like, I don't really I, expect anything else. 
No, no, absolutely not. It doesn't feel phoned in in any way, considering, like, if you're right, they probably did have him for a day. Uh, but but he, go, but he goes for it, and he's in there a couple of times, and I think he's always, he's consistently great in it. Yeah, he just lent, put his A game straight on. Yeah. Now, at this point, we get a little bit of a perspective on the kind of, the cultural impact of Sutter Kane. Yeah. And yeah, because it's on the news, I think they're talking about people... Um, writing. Writing, because writing. shops don't have his book, which is, right. yeah. isn't out yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's been delayed. It's like, could you imagine if George R. R. Martin fans did that? Every time you went to Waterstones and the Winds of, Win- like, Winds of Winter wasn't there, everyone just kicked off. Like because it's 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 been delayed, but presumably they knew that or it's been mentioned. At some point. Well, uh, the the public, I would imagine, they I'm pretty sure they don't know of Sutter Kane's disappearance. I think they're keeping that. I think they're trying to keep that under wraps. Right. Okay. Um. But certainly they are. Certainly, the people are expecting this book and the publication of it's been delayed. Um. And they've only got half a manuscript or something by this point. Mm. Not enough to run with. Although, if, look at Steve Larson. They could. Uh, Let's get someone else to finish it. Yeah, <laughs> get Stephen King to finish it. <laughs> I think it's interesting that they riot due to the suspected, you know, the delays for the release of the book because, of course, this was the nineties. The internet and social media wasn't as mm-hmm. present. Perhaps if there wasn't Facebook, they would riot if a George Martin book was delayed. But now they can just express their rage and you know tweet in Facebook form. Yeah, because, exactly. You know, going outside yeah. and making a riot is, is it's imp- effort. You know, people are busy and you can't do that on your phone. So the, the impotent rage of the keyboard gangster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the comment section, yeah. grim. So, yeah. Yeah, so um, Sutter Kane's disappeared, and so has the manuscript for the uh, in the mouth of madness. Yes, the, naturally, the hmm. book within a film. The book within a film, within a film, within a book. Yeah. We're pretty much teetering on the precipice of the rabbit hole now. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Jackson Harglow, he uh, he assigns Trent an assistant uh, in his investigation into the disappearance of Sutter Kane. Uh, Styles, Linda Styles, Linda Styles, yeah, 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 played by Julia, Julia Carmen. Carmen. Yeah, yeah, the most attractive Latino woman working in horror. Wow, it was a specific casting requirement, but you know. So they set off on their on their mission to find uh, the possibly fictitious town of Hobbs End. Yeah, which um he, he happens on that and the route to it in a pretty clever way, doesn't he? Like he kind of like he slices up all he slices all the covers. Well, it's, it's and, worth mentioning he's not a horror book fan at all. He's quite derisive of horror horror books and horror literature in general. Mm-hmm. He sees them as kind of pulpy trash, yep. um, and he when he accepts this mission. Uh, mm-hmm. Case he does go and he, he buys up the the kind of back catalogue of Sutter Kane books, and uh, he and, uh, something that I still don't quite understand because I've never quite been able to see it and what he does, but he notices in the front covers of the books that Is if it? he was to cut them and put them together, it's a map. I think there's there's patterns of red lines on the covers of the books. Ah, and I think that he cuts along yeah. them or something. Is that right? And he's helped with the power of montage and music as well. Of that course, always helps yeah. you reach a final point yeah, it hurries, it hurries things along the detail. Yep. and it's yeah. feverish scissor work it is he's in the moment there um, but yeah he, he constructs a map from um, segments of book cover and uh, yeah he discovers that Hobbes End which uh, has been written about quite a lot in past Sutter Kane novels and, is indeed where Sutter Kane is holed up uh, and that is in New Hampshire playing quite closely to the Castle Rock and as, Main as, thing as a quick point, of, a quick point of trivia: Hob, of course, is also the word for uh, hobnob, a popular type of biscuit, and, <laughs> and a kicker mi- top, uh, and that, yep, yeah. and Mitch. Uh, I, what? Well, <laughs> if, 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 
Well, Mitch hasn't done his trivia research for the word hob, but it's also an old medieval word for devil as well. There you go. Ah, nice. Okay. Yeah, pop- That's, that yeah. feels a little more pertinent than the biscuit one. Okay. That's a good top. I must yeah, admit, well, I, d- I doubted you every step of the way there. I was like, what is the end game here? Where is he going with us? <laughs> uh, we've only just started the match. <laughs> of course, gonna... um, Hobbs End is also a subway train station in Quatermass and the Pit as well. So, yeah. Hobbs End calls the town that, same name as the subway station in that movie. Okay. Which is kind of quite a good Lovecraftian-inspired sci-fi film from the Well, there's a lot 60s. of that. Um, the, the old lady that runs the hotel, she's Mrs. Pickman, and uh, Lovecraft had Pickman's model, the, the, the short story, Pickman's oh, okay, model. Okay, Andy, you did your research, yeah. fine. Yeah, 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 yeah we get it. That's okay. Yeah, Unlike Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Johnny, no notes. <laughs> I'm watching you. Sitting there with your no notes, <laughs> unencumbered. S- s- sitting there retaining all your knowledge f- with just your brain. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Without the cramp inherent and writing fevered notes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so then they set off to Hobbs End, which may or may not be fictitious. She seems quite confident that it's made up. Um, however, kind of uh, Trent's pretty sure that they'll they'll find it. A lot of towns apparently go missing and stuff, which wasn't aware of. This, there's a scene in the car just as they're making their journey, which is one of my favourite scenes in the whole film. And it's when she... What's her name again? Styles. Styles, Styles, Styles is yeah. sleeping and Trent thinks it's funny to wake her up with a like a bike horn. Yeah. Like a, <laughs> and he kind of honks the horn at her and she freaks out and she she's kind of hitting him with a packet of crisps. And he says to her, never, never, never throw chips at a driver. <laughs> I'm just like... As the, that's quite sweet. As the old saying goes. Well, you know. Um, it's quite Fulci-esque at times as well when they get to, when they actually arrive in Hobbs End. Okay. Which they just do. Yeah, they just appear there. Yeah, they, they drive through a tunnel like in Beetlejuice and then they're, they're there. They're in, they're in Hobbs End, which is full of mad people and mad dogs. Yeah, Hobbs End, for someone who didn't, to have claimed that she was pretty sure that it didn't exist, Linda feels pretty, it seems like she's kind of familiar with it or it seems that way to me the way that she interacts with the surroundings and things it feels like she knows more than she lets on although that's not particularly explored I guess no, no, um, well I think I think if I recall she suggests that she was pretending not to know that the town existed but that in fact initially it was supposed to be a stunt that Samney was bringing into it but that it's that's not going to correct the plan because what was supposed to be fake is now real there's no reality yeah we can get to that in a sec because there's I actually really like that as a twist in fact we can talk about this now actually um, I really like uh, the fact that rather than it being entirely right or being entirely a fake out it was like oh we had this in mind as a kind of publicity stunt but we didn't know about X and Y and it's actually much worse and it's real <laughs> yeah in many ways, the best publicity stunt you can get is the real one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, it's this mysterious forgotten town, which to me, it, it does bring back a lot of lovely Fulci memories, who again was a massive uh, a massive Lovecraft fan. Yeah. Um, it feels very like the beyond the town, uh, which which I like. But they go, to, they go to stay at the Pikmin Hotel, which from the get-go is a weird place. It's pretty weird, yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Pickman, she was the she was the old grand uh, Mrs. Chalfont in Twin Peaks. Oh right, okay. Um, yeah. I actually think that there's quite a there's a, a few things, um, a few different instances in this film. This being one of them, kind of put me in in the mind of like Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. 
And it well, we're around a very similar time yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twin yeah. Peaks is only a couple of years gone by the time this film comes out. I think some of the interactions, especially that one, and I think later on when he's on the bus, oh yeah, both oh, yeah, felt yeah. really unchained to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think one of the, the cool things about the script is that it allowed the it allowed some of the dialogue and some of the moments to be a little bit absurd. Yeah, before yeah. returning to kind of straight horror and things like that. And I think it's interesting, but a lot of horror films nowadays, their tone is sustained throughout. Mm-hmm. You know, they they feel too afraid to have a line, just bring in a bit of a bit of comedy a bit or just something unexpected like it's, it's one of the, the last films that almost seem to have characters sometimes say things unexpected yeah like for example the crisp joke mm-hmm. you know and it's a bit like it, it harks back to films like uh, it's called lonely dark house with the, the line have a potato you know and <laughs> and just things like would you like to have a potato after building all this suspense at a dinner you know and that's a, that's a quality i think we've, we've lost at yeah. the moment there are some adorably goofy things in this film. Yeah. Um, that they don't strike you as particularly jarring, but you're quite like they don't pull you out of it. But they're just nice little additions that feel nice and they're kind of welcome in the story. That's I, that's hard to do. That's yeah. I, I've been able to include elements like that that don't fuck with the tone of the film. Yeah. It's that's really tricky, and it's something that I think you see people get wrong far more often than you see people get right. Yeah, John Carpenter's always always had a, a kind of, he's always been quite strong at being able to inject moments of humour into things uh, across all his work. Really, um, there's kind of moments of levity in there, and even in the darker stuff, even in the super dark stuff, there's those little moments that come through, but they never pull you out of it unless you're talking like a straight kind of comedy thing, like Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. But even in like Halloween and and the thing, there's even little these little moments of levity and the kind of darkness of it, which is nice. Yeah, I agree. I think oh, he's yeah, no, that's I, a, a real totally. strength of his. Like, it, it, he uses well, it quite well. Well, this is it. If you, if you end up with horror films that take one of two extremes, all the characters behave superficially, or all the characters are all po-faced and really serious because they're being very postmodern, then <laughs> it's like, well, you know, what happens to the classic horror tale by the campfire mm-hmm. that would have the scary bits, but then would have the bits that bring them back in with a bit of warmth before scaring them again? It's nuanced storytelling which is something that has been deteriorating because style is taking place of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And with Carpenter in that film, you can see him trying, I, I would say successfully, maintaining a balance of the two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to um, talk about when Linda and Trent find the church. I love that church. That church is amazing. That is an amazing Beautiful. building. Yeah, um, and... They, so they're kind of hanging around outside it, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's at that point that I think it would be fitting to uh, say hello to Claudette from the Oh, room. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to ask the question. Yeah. Hi, Claudette. Hello. What are these characters doing here? Excellent. So, yeah. Uh, so Amor- <laughs> that, that was really good, Mitch, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like that bit. Quite, quite the impersonator. <laughs> you know that... Let's the- take a minute. <laughs> <laughs> When they reveal the church, though, for the first time, you have Sam Neill's character, Trent, going, if this is all true, then I should open this window. Yeah, and right course. there is a you know, 17th century Byzantine church. Yeah. And it's revealed. And that actually worked on me when I first saw it. I was well, like, holy yeah. shit. I think it's important to mention that at this point, the suspicion is certainly that we are now living in the book in the mouth of madness. 
correct? Yeah. Uh, I didn't I didn't catch on to that at this point, but I am notoriously stupid yeah. for things like that. So those. at this point, Styles is very much... Why do I have such a block on her name? <laughs> I know. Styles is very much uh, saying to Sarah Kane... Not to Sarah Kane, sorry, to Trent. Look, this is... We are in the book. All, everything that's happening now happens as it happens in the book. That painting over there is doing stuff. And this old lady being here, That's this is all directly from the book. And he says, yeah, well, like you say, well, if the if that was true, then if I open this curtain, there's going to be the Byzantine church out there. And he opens it, there is no church. And she says, yeah, but if you'd read the fucking book properly, you would know that you have to look east. And she opens another curtain, and the church is there. So yeah, he so starts to be like, "What the fuck?" That's a great reveal. Just even by having the the first failed, the false reveal, and yeah. then the second yeah. real reveal, it makes it, it sells it so much more. Like, oh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, mm. and then we do get to the church, and uh, the the I guess it's fair to say the toothless yokels. Who are these people? <laughs> like, see, 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 see yeah, the, the, the people, the, the people that roll up in cars outside the church with the shotguns. The townsfolk, the lead guy. Yeah, but uh, why are they there? What do they want? They want Sarkin. Right. Okay. They want, for some reason, they really want. To, no, they want the little boy, don't they? Oh yeah, that's right. He's supposed to. Because there's a little. He's, ta- he's taking a little. I don't fucking know. But there's a little boy see, with blonde like, hair. See, don't make it out like this is all fucking black and white, Stuart. <laughs> it's a mystery. <laughs> I think. I think if I recall right, the. You have the townspeople come out and they're like, it's led by the father who says, he's got my boy, you yeah. know, in this kind of that American Swedish accent. It's Vigo the Carpathian yeah. in Ghostbusters 2. Outstanding. That's amazing. And he's really good in it, in that cameo part, you know, especially his little monologue before he blows his head off. First you got the children. Yeah, that's that right. is great. That yeah, is, you got that, the badges. That's know, a great but scene. But yeah, but these, these characters, they're all getting progressively more and more monsterified. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, that's, that's fine. fine. <laughs> but yeah, they come looking for Kane to get this little blonde-haired kid back. Um, and he's weirdly just in the church with Sutter Kane. Yeah, see, this is what I'm talking about. I don't about. know why he's in there. Uh, yeah, like, did he just wander in there? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. But then we get an amazing reveal of Jürgen Prock now as Sutter Kane where we get a big smash and zoom right up into him. He's smirking, clearly evil as fuck. There's lightning and shaking off all around him. And then he sets Dobermans on the townsfolk. Dobermans, I think, are the scariest dogs in the world. They're fucking terrifying. Horrible men. Oh, yeah. If they'd been West Highland Terriers, uh, (laughs) suspense would have been somewhat. Chihuahuas. Just kicking these chihuahuas. Just chihuahuas flying across the screen. (laughs) Boom, fuck off. Strong language violent scenes does not condone violence against dogs. <laughs> so yeah, um, so that happened. Uh, <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> oh man, right. Oh, carry on. Right, so um, it's a great introduction to Sarkin, Yeah, I think uh, really cool. Like you say, just like so cartoonishly villainous, but also quite a cool like first introduction. Yeah, he's kind of Jurgen Prochnow is kind of playing it super super evil the whole way through. Oh yeah, like, and he has like a kind of natural charisma that actor as well. That yeah, it leads a dimension to the character even when he is just standing there smirking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a really, it's a really good moment. He's got a really haggard face as well. I think that really, yeah. that really suits it. Savage. Um, no, he's got like he's got no, really kind of. There's a lot going on in his face. Like yeah. he'd be a great man to paint. He's been exhausted by all the years of re-releases of Daspit. That... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's written all over his face. Beverly Hills Cop yeah. too. <laughs> the five-hour cut of Beverly Hills Cop too. You know, it's just. Yeah. <laughs> so at this point, they just kind of leave. 
They yeah. don't actually make an attempt to speak to Sutter Kane at this point. No, they just wind up back at the hotel. That's one of the many things about that scene that I found kind of confusing. It was once yeah. he appeared, there was no real attempt to communicate with him. Just like, oh, that's him there. Anyway, they could the have hotel. just walked up to him at that point and said, "Can we get the rest of the book? Can get we'll just get out your hair?" Uh, <laughs> yeah, but they choose not to do that. And it's at no. that point, I believe, that they go back to the hotel and they have the conversation about the fact that um, Styles was unaware of. Uh, no, there was an element of this that was a pre-planned stunt. Yeah, I mean, they basically, it probably wasn't part of the plan that he would emerge as an apocalyptic demigod with lightning <laughs> and a legion of Dobermans released upon hapless victims. It's like, hey, that's not part of the plan. <laughs> the prank's gone wrong. There's 30 Dobermans chasing us and eating guys. That's, that's fair. <laughs> just, just imagine, you know, if that was part of the stunt, just like sitting in just a boardroom being like... Maybe overplayed her hand on that one, boys. <laughs> yeah. But when they get back to the hotel, there's that really weird scene where he goes and speaks to Mrs. Pickman again. And this she, is great. It freaked me out so much. Yeah, it's fucking amazing. It's so weird. You see how she's she's looking a lot more haggard. The way all the townsfolk are, every time you're reintroduced to them, they're looking more and more monstrified, uh, like I said, trademark. But as she, while they're talking, you hear this kind of... I guess Samuel tries to look behind the kit, behind the desk and she's kind of blocking him. And then when Trent leaves to go back about his business of wondering what the hell's going on, which is essentially what he does for the whole film, yep. it's revealed that Mrs. Pickman has her husband, her naked husband, chained up to her ankle, yeah. which is super cool and really weird. And I've oh, it's some a scene I've always loved. Like, why the fuck has that happened? Yeah, yes. it's, it's, it's so disturbing. disturbing. And then, of course, she becomes a monster, massive Lovecraftian tentacle beast. Yeah. Yeah, and and also just the, the the idea of like the facade, the mask as well of humanity and the monsters mm-hmm. that lurk underneath this this idea of the unknown. You know, at that point, Trent doesn't he's investigating, but he's not ready for the full truth. He wouldn't, he can't yet see it. He can't bring himself maybe to push aggressively to look over the counter. Yeah, you know, you know it's like, and I, I guess it's probably a metaphor in there about humanity's inability to see the giant return of the fish people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's immediately after this that um, uh, Linda Stiles has her first encounter, a proper encounter, a proper interaction with uh, Sir Kane. Yeah. Who is sitting in the middle of the church, like typing theatrically on a typewriter. Now, what I will say is, I love his writing room. Oh, yeah, it's uh, great. If anything's going to get you into the mindset for writing horror books, it's that fucking room. It's, I think it might be blood that's cascading down the walls, <laughs> or skin or something. Yeah, that's going to, that, that'll do the job. If you want to get in the mindset, a massive baroque table in a room covered in blood and skin is probably the best way to go. Yeah, it works. It works for me. It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> I actually imagine that's how you write it, and your and your church. It's just my bedroom that's like that, Andy. Um... <laughs> um, so they have a, they have a little bit of a back and forth, and he kind of exposes her to the front page of the manuscript for In the Mouth of Madness, and then she starts crying blood in the first act and a half of the film flashes before her eyes. Uh huh. Yeah. What, what's your question? No, that's just that's, that's just I'm just verifying. It could be because Sutter Kane is actually trying out a Dean Koontz book on her first, mm. and that's why her eyes. A a- any, Dean Koontz, any Dean Koontz fans out there want to weigh in on this? Yeah. Feel free at the debate of who's the better writer. Feel free to do so. I really like the part where he's uh, during this part when obviously she seems to have like kind of absorbed the entire plot of the book by osmosis. When he uh, yeah yeah, and um, I think when he like Johnny Five. Yeah, pretty much. I, that. So he's already said at this point that they, a non-specific they are telling him what to write. Yes, and Be- I, from behind the bulging door. Yeah, and I think like when when he says, "Do you like my ending?" I think that's a really satisfyingly creepy moment as well. Like, yeah, that does really work yeah. well. Yeah. 
the Styles creature comes up pretty soon after this, um, mm. when she becomes the the kind of all fours crawling beastie with a but her head kind of spins round and stuff. Yeah, there's some quite exorcisty shit. Yeah, going I on always there, thought that was a really cool, a really cool creation. Yeah. There's actually a lot of really good monster work in this, particularly when that door opens, when um, when the bulging door opens and we're exposed to the big corridor with all the kind of they or them as it is in there. That's some great work again by the those KNB guys. Oh yeah, I mean apparently when Styles is transformed and she's her body is all contorted. It was actually performed by three small people whose bodies were interlocked. Uh, one of their heads wore an upside-down mask of styles, and another one's head wore her left hand, and another one's head wore her right hand. It's quite incredible. Are you making this up? No, no. No, it's actually quite an achievement. Well, I read it was a contortionist that did it wearing a mask, so... <laughs> One of us is talking shit. Don't know where you read that from, Andy. <laughs> that sounds that's, that's, that sounds made up. <laughs> I'm far more likely to, be, to believe dwarf Lego. Christ, I'll lie. I'll take the, I'll take this out there. This out there. Yeah, good night. It keeps the story kind of bounces around madly for a bit, um, and I think it, I think in the kind of rather than the third act, if you were to break it down into quarters, yeah, the kind of third quarter, kind of loses its way a little bit. I think it's um, the, it's the part where it's most it's threatening the most to kind of derail or stumble a little bit from a storytelling angle. Yeah, mm-hmm. he goes back to the hotel again. <laughs> There's a really funny bit, uh, again, great comedy timing, where he runs into the room and he gets thrown right back out through the door. But then he goes to the bar this and is he great. meets up with Vigo again. Yeah. This is what you were talking about, wasn't yeah. it? I like Vigo's monologue. I mean, it's, it's good. Yeah. But, but, that, but, I mean, that's, but, that's him performing great. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's nice lines. It's, you know, he does it well. But that scene, pace-wise, seems a little bit unusual. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like we're retreading territory that we're already familiar with which is everything's turning to crap yeah you know people mm-hmm. are changing he does get to have a few chilling lines in but it could maybe seem more like a sidestep rather than an advance on the story i would say that's fair <laughs> yeah. trent still isn't buying any of it he's like <laughs> it's makeup it's practical effects i still have he, he thinks he's in some kind of mad kind of fun house i think that that's exactly what he thinks he's that's some big joke on him at this point then he winds up back with he winds up back in the company of Sutter Kane. I tell you, see, before we jump to that, there's a, a, a again just a really, like an individual line and moment that I really liked in that scene when uh, Vigo goes to shoot himself and kind of uh, Trent motions to stop him and his response is just I have to. He wrote me this way, yeah. which again was pretty creepy, Brilliant. like that. Yeah, yeah. really cool. At I that have point, to. he wrote me this way. Exactly <laughs> that. Yeah, <laughs> so having Vigo in the room. <laughs> I like that we've just called, decided to call this guy Vigo. Yeah, yeah. He would <laughs> yeah, want that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he would want that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, don't think, I think... Who wouldn't? Yeah. It winds up back with Sutter Kane again, and they have this kind of back and forth between the two of them where he is gifted the finished final manuscript um, and a lovely black presentation. But it's very like something you would do, Laurie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's gifted a lovely black presentation box with uh, In the Mouth of Madness in it and told, there you go, that's what you came for, essentially. That is a kind of a, the kind of thing that you, it's like a fancy Kickstarter goal box, isn't it? <laughs> if you pledge two and a half thousand pounds, you can have a prophetic tome that will change the face of humanity forever. <laughs> and an executive producer. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I should try that next time. This man's the fucking king of the Kickstarter. But you know, Andy, it really all comes down to God. 
So you've got Trent, right, from the start playing a skeptic. With yes, everything. of course. Yes, He's an yes. insurance investigator. He doesn't believe anything. And I kind of, and then you have this manuscript, which is a bit like, supposed to be like the new Bible, a bit like the mm-hmm. Ten Commandments, but of this alien race, you know, or this, this supernatural race, or however you want to, to think of it. And the great joke seems to be with this, even with the, when he's confronting Vigo at the end and Vigo's dying, you know, and he still can't bring himself to believe. It's almost like there's an argument being made that the position of the skeptic is so inflexible that even when presented with the proof, yeah, it can't change itself. And that drives Trent mad because of his inability to accept the new reality, which mm-hmm. is one that's at odds with his conceptualization of reality which is skepticism resides on. Just thought I'd throw that in for you. Yeah, I think it's fair. Yeah, I, think I think it's absolutely yeah, spot, I think it's spot on. Down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the, so the under, my understanding of it is that the kind of rabidness and the devotion and the scale of his fan base has basically willed his willed his fictional writing into fact, right? That's kind of how it's presented. Yeah, and it? you know, like that, that phenomenon, the idea of belief being able to manifest into reality is, is something referred to as the Tulpa effect, mm-hmm. which okay. is, um, I, think it's part of, I think it's part of Buddhism or something, but the idea is that so many people believe something, they can create a reality. Though psychologically, that would be a relative position, a bit like if we, did, we all decided that, you know, a Trump bar was God, would it become God? Because it is kind of important sometimes if you're hungry. Yeah, they are good. <laughs> it's good that you brought up the Tulpa effect, Mitch. Yeah, I, 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 that was definitely deliberate. Um, just inviting a jump off point about that. Yeah, I, please that was, please that, elaborate. Yeah, yeah, that, was, that was definitely your intention. <laughs> 100%, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very, very au okay with that. I definitely have wasn't just hearing that for the first time right now, ever. By the way, Tulpa, not a good film. <laughs> I hear. Uh, but topic we bars are okay. We do a whole, <laughs> do a whole episode on Tulpa. I'd love to do that. Uh, so moving on. Yeah, so Sir Kane kind of sends him off with a with a manuscript and on his on his way, and he uh, yeah is chased down the corridor by some lovely monsters, some pretty good looking monsters again, and appears back in reality, so to speak. Yeah, he tries to drive out of the town as well, doesn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, fuck, tries to drive out of the town, and it's one of the it's that kind of repeating. He can't escape the. He can't escape the town. The town won't let him. Yeah, it's, um, it's brilliantly done and simply yeah. done. And oh yeah, it's just the same, the same shot recycled over and, and over I'm, again. I'm sure they didn't invent that, but if they did, I totally stole that for Lord of Tears. When <laughs> 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 my hero's escaping and he keeps returning back to the house, so, I, I stole it from someone. The question is who. <laughs> yeah. But like. Um, but just just to return for a second though to the monsters mm-hmm. chasing him, I mean I really like that. Oh um, yeah. All yeah. these goggly creatures chasing down the tunnel. Kevin McTurk is a friend of mine in LA, and he did the effects for those creatures. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, with oh, a yeah. spectral motion. Anyway, he described it as being very low budget. They had to improvise, make these little miniatures. They were like the sizes of uh, like shoeboxes, things like that. And I was well, like, I know that the Pikmin creature was that they had to do a miniature they tried it out in a suit and John Carpenter hated it anytime you see the Pikmin creature it's a it's a miniature oh really that's cool well when they did those creatures chasing uh, Trent um, they thought it would look so terrible that it couldn't be used under any circumstances but John Carpenter was like nah I think it looks it looks good I mean the worst the worst it could go is that thing in Hellraiser that chases 
that chases Kirsty down the corridor yeah. and you can see the guys working it. It's got like a wheel underneath it and all. It's like a <laughs> wheelbarrow. It's fucking terrible. It's terrible. I, how it got in, how it stayed in the film, I've no fucking idea. But, but you know, even with that though, I was sold on that. It, 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 took, <laughs> it, it, it took me to see a documentary that pointed out, you know, the guy dangling from the bottom before I was like, oh yeah. You know, it shows you, you can really get away with a lot with effects. And I think what John Carpenter knew, because he has a reputation for being quite short with effects guys, even mm-hmm. though his career has been built on, you know, on the backs as well with the help of effects guys, is very much the idea that they only need to be convinced of an effect for the first take. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to be pausing a frame. They're not going to be just watching one scene over and over. If it does good enough once, great, mm-hmm. it's done its job. Whereas the effects guys, they want their stuff to hold up under scrutiny. And I think they're quite... I'm a practical effects fan. We, we all know that. I think um, these creatures look good and they're used sparingly as yes. well. So they're only fleeting glimpses. They're never lingered on. So any of those perceived um, failings in the creatures, due to whatever budgetary reason, they don't show at all in this. I don't think they, no, they show No, I, I think you're all. right. Totally. Yeah. And again, thanks to editing, especially mm-hmm. so important, and cinematography. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that I really like about where this film goes in the third act is that despite the fact that there's just this absolute abundance of great creature stuff in it, that it doesn't really become a full-blown monster movie. Yeah. Which I think it's like infinitely to its credit and to its betterment. I think that the fact that it doesn't go down that road and it does something that's, f- for me, far more interesting narrative. Oh, definitely. I think the monster stuff in it is only there to add another level of the weirdness totally. to the film. Because um, it is weird. And seeing uh, the weird Pikmin yeah. monster hacking off the husband's arm that's now handcuffed to a tentacle rather than a leg is really cool. Yeah. It, it, it just adds another level of, what the fuck is going on in this film? But it's, I think it's, um, it's, it's really impressive and kind of commendable that having that and using it in service to something else rather than that being what it's about mm-hmm. is kind of unusual and really commendable. Where are we, right? We're, we're waking up at the crossroads um, with the manuscript and uh, the first on-screen appearance of uh, Hayden Christensen, Anakin Skywalker, uh, as the paper boy. <laughs> I was surprised uh, to learn in his, that in myself. his finest role today. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly the least wooden I've ever seen him. Yeah. Uh, but he get uh, he gets asked. Uh, Trent asks him, "Do you know where Hobbs End is?" And he's like, "I've never heard of it." Yeah, uh, so it's at this point that we get that you get the nightmare sequence, the, the kind of Lynchian thing I was talking about earlier on in the bus. My favourite piece of Sam Neill rage in this whole film is uh, when he's talking to the woman um, about trying to find Hobbs End. And um, she's she's he's going, oh, we need to find this place. I was there today. I've, I've got this written yeah. down and, as and, well. and, and, and she's like, I'm, uh, oh, look, I'm not suggesting that you weren't in a place today but yeah. it can't have been called Hobbs End yeah. that's ne- that's never there's, there's never, never was a place called Hobbs End there never <laughs> will be a place called Hobbs End yeah and his re- and, and his reaction to that is going to go I want to see your supervisor as though <laughs> the supervisor was going to come and go uh, no she's talking shite that place uh, does exist actually um, uh, yeah we'll talk about this later Elizabeth yeah uh, but uh, yeah so, sorry it absolutely does uh, here's some flyers uh, and, a, and a coupon to that lovely bar uh, bar stroke diner in Hobbs End, which yeah. is now decorated in Vigo's brain. Vigo's brain, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know that, that that's my, my favorite like accidental comedy moment. The scene on the bus is my favorite scene in the film. It's great. I yeah, yeah. Love it. I love that. Um, Sutter Kane says to Trent, "Did you know that my favorite color is blue?" And he, when he wakes up, everything's blue. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's at that moment where he truly flips his lid. That's it's that's bl- the moment his his sanity Aye, flips. It's, it's the real. That's the moment point. he breaks. It's, it's well acted, and it's such a great exercise in simplicity as well for creating something. Like mm-hmm. I would never have even. Like, I would struggle to have conceived of something as simple as that in terms of writing a scene. Okay, and now it's just you know you could put like a color gel on it. You could make it in post. You can make it just whatever. And that on its own can create such a, a powerful scene. Yeah, like I would be. Uh, as a filmmaker, I would almost be too scared to have it as simple as that without putting more bells and whistles on it. Yeah, you know, you'd feel like you need something more to sell it. But in that film, it shows you how how well it's done. Also, um, the old lady character on the bus that's talking about the depression. You know, she yeah. says people think they have it hard now. You know, this kind of thing. It, it kind of builds to this this weird idea of like like things are going wrong. Like we're on the kind of precipice. You know, maybe. Like there's just this kind of ambient of doomsday kind of quality to it. Yeah, it's there's this marriage of these strong, simple visual ideas with this kind of subtle, well casted kind of little actor pieces that really contribute to making such an uneasy atmosphere. I think it's a really well written script. Actually, uh, it's yeah, it, there's a lot going on in it. And I feel like it's it's well delivered. It, it really, um, really I, effective. I, another, another thing as well, when you say about, I want to see your supervisor, you know, that, that <laughs> bit. It's, interestingly, there isn't many films in which you would have, ostensibly, uh, nowadays, uh, a middle-class white guy as the lead. And, of course, the futility of that character to come to deal with what's happening to him results in this kind of quite aggrieved middle-class like behavior you know i want to see your supervisor you know like this yeah. is this is how that particular character would express his outrage in the face of armageddon you know um, <laughs> it's a very british way to it is, it is. It. And, it's so good and then that that makes for an interesting dynamic but i think with i think at the moment casting in a lot of modern horror films right now is so boring and, and yeah it's it's very postmodern. it's very pop culturally compatible mm-hmm. um and I don't think that even John Carpenter's casting was as much then. I think it was unusual even then to have an insurance investigator be your, your main character. And I would like to see... I suppose, yeah. Sure. I, I, yeah. Certainly, I've never done writing scripts about insurance investigators, right. uh, loss adjusters. Payroll administrators, that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> because it, yeah. their reactions are going to be a lot more human and interesting and futile than than casting you know, based on whatever the trendy pop cultural phenomenon is of the moment. Yeah, I would like to see filmmakers be braver and more interesting with their characterizations for their leads. They think they are by being exceptional in terms of serving um, casting related to gender, race, things like yeah. that. But they're still playing boring people. <laughs> and I mean, like, okay, if it's going to be of an ethnic minority or a lady, sure. You know, great. You want to improve their profile in horror films or any films, great. But give them an interesting character. I think Sam Neill's bloody brilliant in this. He is. He is. He's great. I think he's superb. I think he does hysteria amazingly well. Like, between this and uh, Possession, uh, I think. Uh, uh, Possession came into my mind a couple of times. Yeah, he... And even the kind of darker, colder moments like this and like in The Omen, uh, when, it, when uh, The Omen 3... What the fuck, oh, what 3, I think it, it is, three. yeah. Um, yeah, I think, he's, I think he's amazing in this. I'd love to see him do, do more of this insane stuff. There's Event Horizon. Oh, Can't fuck, Event yeah. Horizon. <laughs> and he is properly insane in that. Yeah, fucking hell. It's good to see him get a chance to play himself on screen. And Event Horizon is... 
<laughs> way to experience that. Right, I'm going to pull this back linear because uh, the plot gets a little bit uh, like revelation heavy at this point as we kind of pull towards the end. Yeah, a lot happens very quickly. Yeah, yeah. He returns to Arcane Publishing yep. and back to uh, back to Jackson Harglow. Yeah. And uh, Charlton Heston informs him that we didn't send you with a woman. You went on your own. You brought us the manuscript months ago. The full manuscript months ago. The book has been out now for it's, seven weeks. Yep. Film in the works. And the film is imminent. And at this, po- <laughs> at this Which, point... Which, by the way, is a really impressive turnaround for an adaptation of a book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They must have... <laughs> yeah, they yeah. worked hard. I mean... <laughs> uh, presumably the rights were sold as soon as the book was announced. Yeah, um, they would have to have been. Yeah. The descent here for Sam Neill continues pretty rapidly. He is completely bewildered he finds himself wandering the streets and um, people are queued up all along the all along the, the streets trying to buy this book yeah has uh unravels pretty quickly for him yeah to the point that even when we come back to the asylum that he's in at the start of the film like, which he finds which we we find out why he's there because he also then becomes an axe-wielding madman and uh chops a guy to death in the street yeah. Who has just purchased a copy of In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah. Which now has Sam Neill on the front cover. <laughs> which is so good. I <laughs> which love is a, that. Which is amazing. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, and then, yeah, so the asylum, it's abandoned, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, my favourite kind of exposition that you get, exposition on a radio that's inexplicably still on mm-hmm. in, the aban- in the abandoned uh, asylum. That's a good... I like it. It's a good... It's I a, like it too. Yeah, yeah. It's a good thing. Like Everyone else is gone except a voice on a radio. Yeah. There's, some, there's something... There's always something quite spooky about that. Yeah. I suppose the only potential critique you could make, and I would say this with some hesitation, is that eventually, when you're reaching this final point, even when he's meeting... Uh, it's Charlton Heston. <laughs> you know, just Charlton Heston. Yeah. And um, you already know where... The car, you know what the cards are, mm-hmm. what they're going to be dealt, and so really just seeing out more how the end of humanity, as it were, is going to manifest. But you know it's happening. You know yeah. it's a lost cause. It might have been interesting if it had been possible to build it up just a bit longer, to a bit more towards the end, um, because although I, I I like how it ends, you know you're seeing it just kind of even collapsing, as it were. It does play out. Um, I think of films like um, like Halloween Three, Season of the Witch, how they managed to build up the suspense all the way to the very end. You know, he's on the phone call to all the TV broadcasters to pull the pull the advert that he knows will kill hundreds, thousands of children, right to the end. And although it's a bit tricky because it is, um, you know, he's telling the story in in, retro, in retrospect, uh, but but like I would like to have seen a bit a bit more of, of that tension just bringing on a bit further. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think that's correct. I think that the way that all of the revolutions are handled and the way it kind of feeds into the story are all pretty well done here. Yeah, that's I quite. I think it's quite tight. It, yeah, it, it, the it moments, manages to... The, the way the film's put together bothers me at some points, but I don't think that detracts at all from actually how tightly told the story is. Yeah, I don't... It considering... feels weirdly constructed rather than badly told. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, considering how much is going on narratively, I think it does a really good job of not getting bogged down in over explanation at any point. Yeah. I don't think that it ever and like even like I say when you're getting revelation after revelation and kind of twist after twist at the end, I think that it does manage to do all that stuff in a way that's kind of restrained. It never you never get the kind of like Professor Cliff Notes character kind of filling you in anyway. Yeah. I think the closest you get to that is the radio, which I actually think is really cool. And uh, And yeah. sort of Kane himself. Yeah. Which is fine. 
Yeah. Which, yeah, also fine. Because yeah. essentially he's our story. He's essentially our storyteller anyway. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, if anything, it's, a, like, it's the most appropriate thing you can have, essentially. The, the film does a lot of that exposition through simple visual storytelling without having to go into the detail. Even like the the painting in the hotel that shows the couple by the lake. Yeah. And you see the... I think it's the guy or the girl in the painting is transforming into what you know will the be the monster. The townsfolk are becoming as well. Yeah, like eventually into like yeah. a fish process. Like, by doing those kind of things... It avoids having to have lots of dialogue exposition, yeah. which is always a killer for pace and everything. It really is, yeah. It can be a real momentum killer, and I think that it's the kind of thing that... Because, like you say, this this film, is, it's really, for such a complex story, it's really tight, it's really lean. Yeah. There's hardly any fat on it at 93 all. 93 minutes. Yeah. Yep. And it's, it's like, quite um, nice and tight. And it it seems like a bigger story, doesn't it? For, mm, that, oh, yeah. for that duration, it seems to tell you a, quite an epic Horror story. I know that um, Graham said this in the last episode. Graham Skipper said that if they were to remake the village today, it would be about two and a half hours long. I think the same is true of this. If if someone was to take on a remake of this now, I feel it would be so flabby yeah. and padded out. Yeah, that that's it, probably true. Yeah, it, it would completely ruin it for me. I or think. that would certainly be the danger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're just about there with this. Um, the final, the final scene. Um, yeah. Where he goes to watch the film of In the Mouth of Madness at the cinema, which is great because the poster that you see outside has the full credits for the film, directed by John Carpenter, um, but the, the actor, or the actors as it were, are John Trent and Linda Stiles and Jackson Harglow, so it becomes kind of meta and kind of self-referential and it has fun playing with that. Yeah. And then the film that he watches is the film that we've just watched, which I think is really cool. And he just laughs himself into giddy insanity in the cinema <laughs> on his own. Yeah, which is, um, I, I think this is a great ending. I, yeah. I, I really love the ending. That scene yeah. has become kind of iconic, I think, of Sam Neill with, with his wee bag of popcorn and that in the cinema. Yeah. It's really, really good. It's a great ending. It's interesting as a whole because the film, it kind of typifies to me the idea of a, let's, let's, let's invent a new horror genre. Let's call it nerdy horror. So, like um, things that are, for example, like they're referential to Lovecraft. They're they're made by by older folks that were into things like like gothic comics, fan stuff. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. Now that modern horror is so high concept, it's either you know a postmodern metaphor for Tinder, or <laughs> it's a kind of by the numbers PG thirteen horror. Those are the only two things that they are now. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, if, if you want to make a horror that takes inspiration from, say, Gothic or Lovecraft or anything like that, that's kind of like a nerdy bracket. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that's kind of the bracket that my films operate on. Um, he says with no small measure of pride. Well, I mean, it, it does, but but, but, like, but these other filmmakers, they were doing that, that kind of stuff, as well as creating stuff. So, you know, I think a film like this will probably grow stronger over time as we get immersed with more and more of these kinds of, I don't know, kind of mediocre pop cultural films that take their narrative cues from BuzzFeed instead of yeah, classic literature. That's my grumpy old man bit done. I think it's fair. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fair. <laughs> nah, I think you're both grumpy bastards. <laughs> That's true. Yep. Um, right, I think going in, I think we both knew that uh, the, we probably weren't going to take much selling on this one. I think that we all kind of came in knowing Well, I can, I can tell you, it's probably one of my top three John Carpenter films. Yeah, I think we all came into this with a real liking yeah. for the film. Um, and I don't think it necessarily has to be about that. It doesn't have to be an argument. We're just talking about the fact that, obviously, it's well liked among horror fans, but mainstream critics, not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's an interesting point, though. 
Why does a film say like It Comes at Night be rewarded almost universal praise from critics, but very mixed praise from fans, whereas a film like such as, you know, In the Mouth of Madness is generally has negative critical feedback. Um, what I would say about that is I think that, see, with things like It Comes at Night and The Witch and things like that, which are films I really like mm-hmm. from the last few years, I think that the most boring strand of discussion that you get about those because I mean people can like and not like whatever they want that's fine but I think that what's boring and what's kind of reductive and what's counterintuitive about the conversation about those films is this kind of like oh yeah but it's not really a horror film is it kind of thing and I think that that's where a lot of the negativity comes from and I think that that's actually really dull Um, because I think I think it comes at night's great I would say that I probably like it less than the other films like that that we've spoken about Mm -hmm. but I think that uh, the negativity from fans it's not exclusively but I think there's an element of this kind of humming in here and weirdly splitting hairs about what is and isn't horrible. Well, yeah, I th- and I also think as well, a lot of the marketing of these films has played very heavily on the horror aspect. Oh, yeah, And they're marketed as strong horror. But Babadook did that, for sure, and uh, it comes at night, I think, did the same. And I think The Witch did it as well. I, I feel that the horror aspect of The Witch isn't as strong as the advertising made it out to be. I think The I Witch mean, is like, fucking terrifying. No, I, I think The Witch is terrifying, but I think people were expecting something different to the, like, the kind of... It's a very slow... It's the kind of slow-burn slow gothic story that it is. I think people were expecting something with far more bombast, if you like. Yeah. And uh, I think the marketing of films like the like like we say like the witch and the Babadook and it comes at night um, have painted them all as extremely strong horror and I think that's what annoys the fans because then they've seen them and they've found that dif- that initial marketing difficult to get over. I think they maybe felt like they were promised something and then the promise wasn't delivered upon. Yeah. Oh sure. Yeah. I mean, just to add to to what you're saying, I mean, I can't blame the fans for this one because. Like sure, they can be, um, they, you know, they, they they can have their tastes, and it, it could, and by some artists, be seen as limiting. I don't think so so much myself, but but in any case, distributors have to take the primary responsibility for how a film is shaped and presented to market. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but distributors, and I know I work in distribution as well as a producer, are interested in the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Once someone's bought a ticket to see your movie or buy a copy on DVD, yep, doesn't matter what they thought of it. You have their money. That's right. They can, you know, bitch and moan afterwards. Doesn't matter. Doesn't yeah, matter yeah. if their percentage is whatever. And so, if you're the filmmaker and you've signed with this distributor, well, hell, like, there's no way the guy that made it comes at night thought, yeah, you know what, this will be a great double bill with Halloween, a bunch of horror fans on a Friday night and a love of pizza rocking. That filmmaker will know that. Yeah. Distributor yeah. doesn't want that. Distributor wants the horror fans that bought Halloween mm-hmm. to have that in their collection to go out and buy this, and they also want a mainstream audience. To go out and watch this so you cut a horror trailer and then you know chaos ensues when these fans are like oh man a24 as a distributor is the biggest culprit in, in mis-selling their films as as mainstream horror products because you can see it with every kind of like online review aggregator website like rotten tomatoes that you'll have like 50 60 percent or or less audience ratings reviews and Sure, you can have the critics say, well, they didn't get it because they're not intellectually sophisticated or they didn't appreciate the finer moments of whatever identity politics the film was metaphorically touching on. Blech, rubbish. <laughs> they were sold a horror movie. They didn't get a horror movie. If you want a KFC bucket and you get some foie gras, <laughs> you're not going to want to eat it. It's a simple... Unless you like foie gras. And it's yeah, a, then, yeah. It's a, then it's a pleasant surprise. Yeah, but if you turn up looking for chicken, you know. So... You know that's, I mean that that's that's the problem. 
But oh, I guess on the opposite side of that, maybe critics view certain films as the film that it is. I mean, all of those films that we've mentioned, they're technically very good films, very well acted, they're very well made. acclaimed films as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let, let me just add another point of contention with critics. I mean, I like critics. Heck, thankfully, they've generally liked my films. Um, ah, yeah, right. But <laughs> <laughs> brag, brag, brag. Um, but most film critics today are online blogger personas, and most of them don't Been come. And, and in most of them, and don't get me wrong, any of us are film critics. We watch films. We we you know we have an opinion. That's fine. We're entitled to that. But I think a lot of like online film critics, and I put this in inverted commas, um, prefer associating themselves with films that represent prevailing pop cultural wins rather than reviewing the films for what they are. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, if you have a film that is politically correct and is doing something or is attempting to do something, whether it succeeds or not, that is in vogue, a lot of filmmakers will jump on that. Yeah. A lot of film, well, film critics, for example, I've not seen like the latest Star Wars for, was it Last Jedi or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that? But it, it was a good example of that. It took the politically correct mandate and it seemed to get critical praise for doing that mm-hmm. without much mention of the content of the film, whereas fans were very divided. So, I don't know. I think at the moment, it's a bit like a lot of film critics are almost like extensions of their own Facebook pages. Just <laughs> endlessly... I, I certainly am. You know, but, but, but by that, what See I mean is... Now. <laughs> by that, what I mean is that they're endlessly engaged in the pop culture war. Or yeah. the culture war and all this kind of stuff. And actually, like you go back 20, 30 years, there's maybe less of that. Like If you're a film critic for the Sun-Times, you're going to review the film. You're not going to be necessarily spending three quarters of it talking about diversity. Mm-hmm. And that is perhaps why then, maybe, just maybe, the reviews of the time for a film like In the Mouth of Madness were perhaps more objective yeah. than what a lot of critics are like nowadays. I mean, it's not a perfect film. No. Uh, but but uh, it's a damn good film. It does a lot right. Yeah. It's yeah. a damn good film. And uh, while I think laterally, more recently, John Carpenter's stuff hasn't been great, I feel that this was, for me anyway, his last great film. Okay, yeah. I kind of feel the same as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think this was, this was it, and then it's just been a steady decline since, uh, since that point. Sorry, John, if you're listening. Don't know why you would be. But... I would just say I'm sure he is. But no, like I said, I don't, th- I don't, I don't think that we were ever gonna. I don't think we we're ever gonna really have an argument about whether no. or not we, whether or not we like this. No, but there's like, enough, but, there's it, enough goofy stuff in there, and there's enough to talk about that it's certainly an interesting film. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite glad. I'm glad you brought it to the table, and I'm quite glad we took a little bit more time to go back. And yeah, and I hadn't watched it in a while, actually. Truth yeah. be told, so it was nice to go back and watch it a couple of times again. I can, I, I can see why um, it ne- didn't necessarily sit right with, um, like critically. Yeah, with oh, people, I, especially yeah. with kind of mainstream critics and people that don't watch movies, I can understand the things about it that would be problematic for them. But uh, yeah, for me, that was great. Uh, Laurie, thanks a lot for uh, coming in and especially for choosing the film as well. But thanks for taking the time coming in and talking to us. Let's take a minute to talk about what's going on with you. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot going on with you. Yeah, there's quite a bit. So, um, uh, yeah, what would you like everybody out there to know about? Uh, well, um, thank you for asking, Mitch. Well, yeah, no problem. <laughs> <guys>. <laughs> Yeah, well, at, at the moment, I mean, what I'm working on right now is a film called Automata. No, was it? Let me pronounce it right. Automata. Yes, I keep calling it Automata, which I'm sure is the Scottish pronunciation. I've been calling it Automata. I've Have been you? Yeah. It automata, yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, it's a 
gothic uh, supernatural horror revolving around a life-size clockwork doll. Have you done much gothic supernatural horror before, Laurie? Aha! That's <laughs> funny we should mention that. I mean, like, um, I guess The Unkind Ravens was a kind of folk horror, but yeah, gothic has taken has been quite an inspiration. But this one, in particular, it's kind of like a lot of Mario Bava, Argento yeah. kind of aspects. But yeah, combined, that's quite clear from like the, the stuff that you've... Kind of stylized lighting color, yeah. yeah. But there's a bit of Ken Russell in there as well in terms of the debauchery. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with some sweaty debauchery. In a way, what we've tried to do with Automata is create a film that looks colourful and pretty on the outside, but has a heart of pitch black. It's a film that yeah. tries to combine aspects of The Shining with Lolita, it's very. It goes to very dark places, very dark places, and yet looks very pretty whilst doing so. And it's a film that attempts to really make the audience challenge their own sense of morality with what they want to see happen in it. It's, so in that sense, it's subversive and manipulative, and that that's that hopefully presents quite a cool horror experience uh, for them. At the moment, we're just rounding off a stretch campaign for our Kickstarter, um, so uh, folks can check out the film on Kickstarter. Um, and there will be links to learn more on the page. But like, um, apart from that, we're also developing a studio at the moment. We have mm -hmm. a, a former church building that we hope to make into a cool centre for horror fantasy art, uh, for our films as well as uh, collaborations with artists and filmmakers around the world, and hopefully a cool place for having some parties and events all dedicated to the genre we love. I'll be sitting by the letterbox waiting on my invitation. Yeah, totally. Presumably in some kind of fancy black wrapping with uh, feathers and fucking... Damn right. Le no. Leafs. <laughs> no, it's cool. I mean, we've got our film. We've got two published books that we're doing, which are the first... Jeez. Yeah, I know. Uh, that's, so that's cool. We've been getting a lot of writers involved with that. Um, so, geez, even our owl man cuddly toy as well. Just, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just all kinds of stuff. And we also have another feature film, which is a short film anthology called For We Are Many which has seen filmmakers participate from around the world. And How many filmmakers do you have in it? I think about 16. Oh, fucking hell. Serious numbers. It's a bit like ABCs of Death kind of thing, but it all follows the theme of uh, demons, which doesn't mean that you've got 16 possession films for priests. That would get a bit boring. Uh, but the but the demons, they look all, there's a real mixture. We've kind of curated them and helped right. with the mm -hmm. development so that we make sure that all the scripts that have been developed for are really quite different. So there's some brilliant, cool practical effects in there, and there's some really cool, weird, psychological, trippy, creepy stuff. So that's a film that, like Automata, should be done by... Automata. I'll right? change the pronunciation Sweet. every just time. Just... <laughs> we'll be by the, you know, later this year. Sweet. Uh, Laurie, what can people do for keeping up with you on social media? Uh, well, the, the best way for folks to keep up to date with what we're doing on social media is actually... Just to look me out on Facebook and add me as a friend, because uh, isn't, it's always cool to have friends on Facebook <laughs> that share passion for the horror and fantasy genre. So if they just look for Laurie Brewster, Laurie with a W, mm -hmm. then uh, just add me. That's that's the easiest way. Okay. Okay. No Twitter. Nothing like that. Well, I mean, I'm on Twitter. Um, I sometimes make weird, drunk, abusive tweets and things, but Sweet. but that and Facebook, yeah, is, is is a cool way. And don't be shy. Say hi. There you go. Excellent. Laurie, thanks a lot for stopping in. Thank you. Thank do you want to give us a, Do you want to give us another uh, another bust of the in the mouth of madness theme to take us out? Go for it. Nah, 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 nah. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting watching uh, Andy attempt to masturbate to that theme, but it's quite a beautiful sight if you if you if you to witness it. it goes like nah nah nah. Visualize I'm doing it. it. Nah, nah, doing it rhythmically. Nah, nah. Yeah. yeah, it's like sting, you know. It's tantric. <laughs> tantric. <laughs> right. On that note. 
So not really an argument there, I guess. No, no, not at all. No. Uh, just kind of, yeah, pretty unanimous. But a fun conversation all the same. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. Um, of In the Mouth of Madness, which if you haven't seen before, I mean, like, yeah, make the time for it. It's oh, absolutely. And if you've even got a passing interest in the films of John Carpenter, get it watched. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, on to other things, and uh, this week's feedback. Um, I've ditched the term mailbag after being shamed about it last week. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's been it's been another good week. Thanks to everyone that's been getting in touch. Absolutely, uh, some new folk too, which is nice. Yeah. Um, again, the uh, the detention thing just won't die. Oh no! Um, what now? After we announced uh, the village, we had uh, Grant Dyer get in touch on Facebook saying, right. "I've been waiting for a film that I love to be announced since Detention." <laughs> which I, I, think, I think I think he's I think he's just actively trolling you at this point. Yeah, I feel like Grant and I are destined to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> He's putting up a lot of barriers. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not doing himself any favours, is he? <laughs> no, he's um, not at all. But turning our attention to Twitter, and most of the chat this week has been about The Village. Yeah. That's yeah, a, yeah, like, which yeah, um, a conversation that kicked off pretty much immediately after we announced the film. But um, yeah, a few things. So do you want to go first? We had uh, Danny Naylor. Uh, I've actually only got the one comment about The Village. I don't know how many you've got. I've got a couple. Um, cool. But uh, Danny Naylor at Dan Naylor's tweet got in touch to say, Nah can't forgive that ending you even have m night rubbing it in almost smirking at the screen at you would have found it more plausible if it was all set in space now there's a remake idea yeah uh, of course uh, dan there uh, referring to the end of the film in which m night Shyamalan has a faceless cameo yeah where he uh reveals all the kind of or a lot of the kind of necessary info doesn't he <laughs> yeah he just ties it all up nicely uh the director basically telling us what the fuck we've been watching he bloody loves a wee self-indulgent cameo, oh, doesn't he yeah, yeah, yeah he does yeah. um right i'll batter through my stuff in the village and then uh you can move through whatever it is that you've got left sure mm-hmm. uh but uh darren gaskell oh good lord uh, a couple of comments the third um, man the third man yeah yeah um he said i really wasn't sure when i saw it but i liked what graham skipper said about it it does work better on second viewing for a number of reasons i agree with that i think that uh i said on the episode and have had a few days to think about it i think the same as i don't really know if i like the film anymore than i did before <laughs> But I still think that there was uh, there's Graham said some stuff that I think is worth considering. Oh, definitely. Um, it made but, me reconsider, and yeah. like I said, I was just ambivalent to the film previously. But yeah. I think I did, like I said, when I first watched it, I really didn't like it at all, and I took a lot more from it second and third watches back to back. Yeah, I, I could see myself going which back I can, to it now. Which I don't think I'll ever forgive Graham for. No, um, but yeah, it's one of those things that I think that when I'd watched it, when I'd rewatched it for this. I was kind of like, nah, yeah, that'll do me for the village. <laughs> um, I'm done with that. <laughs> yeah, and like I can draw a line under it. And I think that, yeah, one thing I would say is that it's probably, I will go back to it at some point, I would imagine. Uh, Darren also said, on the subject of the Shyamalaniverse, I was, uh, <laughs> so of course we were positing that um, not only are Unbreakable and Split set in the same universe, um, we think that Bryce Dallas Howard's character Ivy has kind of superhero hearing. Yeah, and superhero reflexes, and thus positing that uh, the village is also set in that universe. So yeah, uh, Dan says on the subject of Shyamalan in general. Right. I was so hacked off at the end of Signs that I stood up, said <laughs> "fuck off" at the screen, and stormed out of the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> in the foyer, I then realised I'd left my unbelievably tolerant girlfriend, now wife, in there. Oh dear. I would say is Darren, you find yourself a keeper there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and um, our good friend Jonathan Dodson at John D. Beard on Twitter uh, jumped on that one and said, I think I did something similar. Really not like anything he's done since Unbreakable and Sixth Sense. Oh. So um, 
after what was kind of pretty much unanimous village support last week, a little bit of a backlash. Yeah, some of the to, hit, to both the village and to Shamalan in general. Some of the naysayers creeping out of the woodwork. Yeah, here they come. <laughs> here they come. Here they come. <laughs> uh, what else you got? Um, what I've got is uh, I've got a tweet from Jumper and Rodi at Jumper Rodi. Um, saying uh, at strong violent PC binge listened to all episodes Thank love you. the show you two engaging bastards here feel like you are picking movies out of my collection so far um, hashtag we are all Mitch now ah yeah. nice little callback yeah absolutely uh, thanks a lot Mark thanks Mark for that that's great Mark, keep listening yeah please do tell your pals <laughs> tell them all uh, I've got nothing else. So I you... have another one. Oh, it's from uh, Dennis Extro Atherton okay he says, hi guys, just checking in. Found your podcast last week and now fully up to date. Thank you. Good man. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm enjoying the show and not being food for chuds. Good lad. Yeah, absolutely. Keep that up. Keep away for the chuds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully hear your thoughts on my favourite movie one day. Kerti, how's the guess? Playing a hunch. Is it extra? <laughs> yeah, the one and only extra. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, cool. Which is a film that I love, by the way. Extra's amazing. Okay. So, see, now that we've done this, we'll see if I guess brings extra one right after like Laurie did yeah Laurie did with uh, Mouth of Madness <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely um, uh, but thanks yeah Dennis thanks for that I would absolutely love to do extra and uh, yeah keep listening I'm glad you I'm glad you're liking it so yeah. far yeah uh, and that's it for this week I think it might be yeah um, thanks a lot to everybody that's been getting in touch as always and if you do want to do that then you can do it in a number of ways you can get us on Facebook and Instagram at Strong Language Violent Scenes you can tweet us at Strong Violent PC and you can also email scenes at gmail.com. Yep, and as always, you can get us on Podbean, or home. Uh, you can get us on Stitcher and iTunes. And I'm going to do a bit of digging into a couple other ones this week. Okay, cool. Um, so hopefully I have some information for you. Yeah. But in the meantime, uh, yeah, if, you, if you're enjoying it, keep sharing it. Keep uh, subscribing, mm-hmm. reviewing, all that yep. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, of course, if you're not enjoying it, please be quiet. <laughs> or, or maybe you'll keep listening in the hope that you'll grow to love us yeah 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 but like, yeah let's, let's not jump to any conclusions you know let's not throw around any two-star reviews too prematurely yeah, okay no, no, just uh just give us a chance and i think that might be just about it yeah for this week's show so um yeah, big thank you as always uh, to everybody that has taken the time to i was gonna say tune in Tune in, yeah, and you're not really tuning. You it's don't have to tune. That's a, a that's a kind of archaic. It's a relic from my, It's a relic from my days in radio. Yeah, and even yeah. now you don't need to tune. You press a button. It does true. it for you. Thanks yeah. everyone who listened, and yeah. of course, particular thanks to uh, Laurie Brewster of Hex Studios stopping by, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, really fun chat tonight. Yeah, it was, it was great. So we'll be back with a mini-sode on Monday. Yes, indeed. Yes. Next full episode, Robin, of course, and uh, next Friday. And in the meantime, don't forget: never, never, never throw chips at a driver. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain, production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes and Podbean.